In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being by Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In Him was life, the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten God, who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. Lord Jesus, You said that to see You was to see the Father, that You are the exact representation in bodily form of all that the Spirit and the Father are. And we thank You this morning that You are the one at Christmas who made a way of escape that you are willing to humble yourself and to take on our humanity, even to the point of death on a cross. We thank you that by your resurrection, you are affirmed to be the sinless Messiah, the one prophesied of, the one whose flesh would not undergo decay. We bless you that you are ruling and reigning, and someday you will come again to judge the living and the dead. Thank you that though your name is mocked and abused and misused, that someday every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that you are Lord to the glory of the Father. We are blessed of you to be called children of God, and such we are, by your grace, not born of the will of man, but by the Spirit of God. And we ask that as your people, you would continue that process to shape us and to mold us, that we might reflect the Lord Jesus fully, that all that he is that we would become in this process of sanctification, that our light would shine in such a way before men that they would see our good works and bring glory to you, our Father who's in heaven. Thank you that just as you promised, you did not leave us as orphans, but you sent the Holy Spirit to live within us. We thank you that when someone is in Christ, he's a new creation, that you take our heart of stone and turn it into a heart of flesh. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for being our helper, our teacher. And as we open this new letter of the New Testament for many for the first time to study it, may our hearts be open and flexible. And may we not just be smarter sinners, but may we become more like Christ. So I ask you today to help me as I teach this book in the months ahead and help me this morning. Give me the strength that you promised you would give in weakness. Come and fill me and anoint me and glorify the one whom you have come to glorify, Jesus. And we ask in his name, amen. I want to invite you this morning to take your Bibles and turn to the Proverbs of the New Testament, the Epistle of James. I want to begin a brand new series on James, which is an extremely practical book, and yet it contains some of the most profound theological truths in all the New Testament. Like the teachings of the Lord in the gospel, the book of James mirrors sometimes the harsh denunciations that Christ makes against sin, along with great comfort. And I'm convinced that one of the major problems today in the body of Christ, especially in the American church, is spiritual immaturity. And so I want to study this book chapter by chapter, verse by verse. And if you listen carefully and you will apply what James shows us, you will never, ever be the same. 
If the great evangelist Billy Graham was correct, he said that in his judgment, 90 to 95% of those who have met Christ in the American church have never grown. They've simply remained baby Christians. Well, God wants you to grow. God wants you to mature so that you can reflect Christ, that you can glorify Him and carry out the mission that He has. And too many churches are just playpens for baby Christians where they need to be workshops for those who are engaged in the faith. Now, let me say that you may have been a Christian for 10, 20, maybe even 30 years. And you may have grown old, but you've not necessarily grown up. God wants you to grow up. He wants you to become like Christ. I meet some Christians in this church who have only been saved two years, and they're more mature than some people who come here who've been saved for 30 years. Now, why is it that people don't grow? Well, sometimes, very simply, they've never been born from above. Unless you are born again, Jesus said you cannot enter and you cannot see or comprehend the kingdom of God. You have to be born from above, and some people think they are, but they really are not. And they're always wondering why it is that they're trying to change and they can't seem to change. Listen, you cannot grow spiritually until you are born spiritually. A second essential component of spiritual growth that James will also highlight is that of spiritual food. And you may come to this church and you will notice that most of our members have a Bible in tow. And if you don't own a Bible, you need to bring one. You don't need to look off of your wife's Bible or your husband's Bible. You need to bring your own Bible. And if you don't have one, you come to meet the pastor and you'll get a beautiful Bible. But coming to this church without a Bible would be like going to a map reading course without a map. You'll just be lost. And the reason many don't bring one is because they've come to church for years and years in different places, and you don't really need a Bible to follow the sermon. And sadly, Bible-based preaching in our day is not the norm, it's the exception. And we are suffering from a malady that the prophet Amos wrote about that the people of Israel were suffering in his day. Listen to these words from Amos chapter 8. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine for bread or a thirst for water, but rather for hearing the words of the Lord. And by the way, that's a principle that runs all the way through Scripture. It was not only true in Amos's day, it's true in our day, that when God's words are rejected, you are no longer able to really hear and comprehend God's Word. God sends a famine as a form of judgment, not a famine for bread. They had already seen that as one mark of discipline. God was hoping to get their attention with that, but rather a famine for hearing the Word of the Lord. And the Israelites in Amos's day had rejected God's Word, and he discusses that throughout this letter. And God basically said, enough is enough you will no longer have a clear word from me. And since Jesus said, quoting Moses, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, a famine for the word of God is worse than a famine for physical food. And today in America, we are seeing the exact same truth lived out that Amos saw in his day. People are challenging the truth of Scripture. They are mocking God's Word. And so it's getting harder and harder to find pastors who will actually teach it. And it's getting harder and harder for pastors who teach it to find people who are willing to hear it. The prophet Samuel recorded this phenomena in his day. Listen to these words. Now, the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord before Eli, 
And word from the Lord was rare in those days. Visions were infrequent. When King Saul sought direction from God, Samuel writes, when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him either by dreams or by Urim or by the prophets. And James will show us in this letter that the same fearful prospect can happen in our day if we do not listen to God's word and obey it. I'm not saying you can't hear it physically. He's talking about people who cannot hear it spiritually does not mean that God will remove all the copies of the Bible. That's impossible. What it does mean is fewer and fewer pastors will teach it, and fewer and fewer people will listen to it. Listen, we have a couple of dozen people who drive about an hour to come to church here every single week. Why? Because they can't find a church in their area that will open the Word of God and teach it. That's a judgment. That's a judgment that God brings on a nation, and He can bring on an individual because of neglect, because of unfaithfulness, and because of sin in the heart. The Bible prophesies this will happen at the end of the age. In 1 Timothy 4, Paul wrote, but the Spirit explicitly says that in latter times, some will fall away from the faith and pay attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. When you see the word faith with the article, the faith, He's referring not to an act of faith, but to that body of truth delivered through the apostles once and for all that we call the Holy Bible. Likewise, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, the apostle wrote, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires. Ladies and gentlemen, that day has come. But while that may be happening in our nation does not necessarily have to happen in your heart this morning. And so James is going to show us how the Spirit of God uses the Word of God not just to save us, to justify us, but also to sanctify us. You cannot grow on Bibleist teaching. Some people don't grow for the simple reason they are not born again. Other people are not growing because they do not have a pastor who opens the Scriptures, or they're not on their own trying to study the Word of God. But there's a third or critical dimension to why people don't grow, and James will also highlight it, that you must not only hear the Word of God, but you must be willing to obey it. And so that becomes a prominent theme in this epistle. In fact, as you study the Bible, you will recognize that there are two prominent themes that run through both the Old Testament and the New Testament. One theme is the way of God. That is, it's written to the lost man, showing him how he can be made right with God. And the other major theme is the walk with God. It's written to the believer, showing him how he should live in light of the fact that God has saved him. And while James deals with both themes, the prominent emphasis of this apostle is our walk with God. He's not interested in stained glass theology. He's interested in grass-stained advice. He wants to put your Christianity into shoe leather. He's writing to people who are high on orthodoxy, but who are low on orthopraxy. He wants your belief to be translated into your behavior. Your creed is to be transfused into your conduct. How a man believes should affect how he behaves. And he is going to underscore that over and over and over again. This is a practical little letter. Have you read it lately? Now, I want to encourage you as we work through it over the next several months that you read it once a week. It's only 108 verses. It'll only take you about 20 minutes in a single sitting 
to read it. But if you will read it at least once a week over these next several months as we study this great little letter, I promise you, you will never be the same. And by the time you are done, you'll be able to think your way all the way through the book of James. Now, reading this epistle is kind of like going to the dentist. The dentist might say, now, this might hurt just a little bit. And some of the things that James is going to tell us, you're going to say, ouch, that hurt. I mean, he will leave no stone unturned. My father was an ophthalmologist. He practiced for 50 years doing surgery. And occasionally, someone would call the home on the weekend rather than meet him at the hospital because it wasn't that urgent or meet him at the office. He'd say, just come to my home because it was a small enough problem, some small foreign body that needed to be taken out of the eye. And my mom would say, my mother had eight children. She's still alive. She's 93 years old. She said, one of dad's patients is coming. He's going to be here in 20 minutes. And my, we would just turn that house over. We would clean up the front foyer in the living room. We'd dust, we'd vacuum. As kids, we stuffed more things under the couch and more things in the closet. You couldn't believe it. I mean, if they had only seen the place 20 minutes earlier, well, James is going to open every drawer. He's going to open every single closet. He's going to open your checkbooks. He's going to examine your devotional life. He's going to talk about your prayer life. He's going to talk about your interactions with other believers on a daily basis. And so the Spirit of God, well, He uses James like a physician who would give a physical examination. Oh, about every five years I go in for a physical. I know I should do it annually, but I don't. And last time I went in, they said, well, you're at that age, you need to have a colonoscopy. And when I heard about it, I thought, what sick mind invented this procedure? That has to be unbiblical. Well, James is going to take us into the examination room. He's going to listen to our hearts. He's going to ask us to stick out our tongues and say, ah. And he's going to explore your motives and your thoughts. And like a doctor who scribbles something on a piece of paper that only the pharmacist with the gift of interpretation can read, James is going to tell you something to do. He's going to ask you to apply these truths. In the Greek New Testament, I counted them. There are 54 imperatives. That is 54 commands with an exclamation mark after them because James wants to take these precepts and put them into practice. Over and over, he's going to say, do this or do that. It's the kind of book that will affect you on every single level. Now, if you have the note-taking outline this morning, you can see I have four simple objectives. It was Aristotle who said, like archers, we will stand a far greater chance of hitting the target if we can see it. So let me delineate the lines of the target this morning. First, I want us to get an overview of the book, the big picture. Second, I want us to understand who is James, which James, Who is the human author who writes this book? Third, who are the recipients? And why is that important for us to know in reading and understanding this letter? And fourth, why did James write the book of James? Now, today we're going to just study first one verse, the first verse, and so much of it is foundational and somewhat historical, but you need to pay attention. Don't let your mind wander this morning. Because what we are going to cover, like in many lessons when we deal the very first message on a new book of the Bible, is foundational to the months that will follow. 
And at least if you fall asleep and you'll wake up, you'll know where we are on the outline, all right? So let's get started. How does this book fit together? How does the book of James fit together? Now, for many of you, when you take a long trip, especially a place where you've never been before, you want to know where you're going and what it is you're going to see. And so perhaps the best way to begin our studies is to try to get the big picture and overview of this short little letter. Now, I need to tell you there are some Bible teachers that will tell you that it's impossible to outline the book of James because he actually deals with over 30 different topics. But if you will read it and reread it over and over and over again, you will discover that the subjects in which he addresses largely fall into three major categories. And again, I've said it many times, if you have the big picture of a book, you know, Genesis, four events, four people. Oh, I I know how the book of Genesis unfolds. And then it becomes a tool in your life, not only to help you when you're looking for something, but also as you're helping others and you're discipling other people. So let's see if we can climb a contextual tree this morning to get an overview of this book. As you can see on this chart this morning, it divides into three sections. Chapter one deals with the development of faith, the development of faith. And uh, he addresses three problems that God uses to develop our faith. In chapter one, he deals with the problem of pain, followed by the problem of temptation, followed by the problem of not applying God's truth to your life. So James will speak in this section on how our faith develops or progresses. When you come to chapters two through four, you turn the corner again, and he deals with the distortion of faith. And he talks about our testimony, about our tongue, and things it is that we should avoid. He deals with our testimony and and our need never to show partiality. He is going to deal with our tongue. He will speak about the man who thinks he's religious. He thinks he is spiritual. And oftentimes, we measure our spirituality by how often I go to church or how many Bible lessons I've studied in the last month or classes I teach or Bible studies I attend or scripture I've memorized or how much theological knowledge I've obtained. But James is going to show us that if you are really spiritual, let's see what you do with the tongue. That's the real litmus test. And so he deals with our testimony, our tongue, and then he will deal with things we are to avoid. Now, continuing in chapter 4, he deals with things we are to avoid. And again, he highlights three problems. First, the problem of worldliness, worldliness in the church. God calls you, if you've been born again, not to be worldly, but to be holy. The second problem, that's chapter 4, 1 through 10. And then in chapter 4, verses 11 and 12, he deals with the problem of judging, unfairly condemning another brother or sister in Christ. And then in chapter 4, verses 13 through 17, he will deal with the problem of perspective. How do I, as a believer who is headed for heaven, live my life wisely so that when I come to the end of my life, I've not wasted my life? When you come to chapter 5, you enter into the third section of the letter where he deals with the display of faith, the display of faith. He will show us in chapter 5 how faith is to be displayed in the different realms of life. In verses 1 through 6, he will deal with the realm of our possessions. In verses 7 through 12, he'll deal with the display of our faith as it relates to patience. And then he will, in the closing verses of the fifth chapter, deal with the realm of prayer. 
So it becomes very clear in the final verses of this chapter that none of this is possible without prayer because prayer changes things. And as you read this letter, and I want to encourage you to read it, start reading it this week, at least do it once this week, but it would be great if you did it once a week until we're done with the book. You're reading a man who is not dealing with theory but with practice. This is a man who lived the life of prayer. He was nicknamed in the first century Old Camel Knees because his knees were so callous from the hours he spent on prayer. And so he's not talking about something you just read in a book on prayer. He's talking about something that had characterized his life. Now, that's the big picture, okay? Secondly, let's ask another important question, who is James? Who is James? Now, of course, in the opening verse, the author identifies himself, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. The challenge is is that there are four different James in the New Testament, and some would say, well, it's impossible to figure out what James it is, how wrong they are, how wrong they are. By process of elimination and by external evidences, it's quite clear who this James is. Now, don't lose your finger here. Let's talk about the four James. This is fundamental this morning, and this will help you with other realms of your Bible study, but turn to the book of Acts chapter 1, Acts chapter 1. In the first chapter of the Acts of the Apostles, four James are directly mentioned or alluded to. In Acts chapter 1, there was 120 disciples in the upper room, and they're doing what Jesus commanded them to do. They are waiting for the coming of the Holy Spirit. And if you remember from the first half of the chapter, Christ had given them specific instructions to wait in the city of Jerusalem for the coming of the Holy Spirit. They were not to try to go out to win the very first person to Jesus until God the Holy Spirit came to be their helper. Now, let's pick it up in verse 12, Acts 1, verse 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. Here's a picture. If you come to Israel with me, and we have a trip planned, God willing, uh, in September of 21, you'll have to be vaccinated, it looks like, the Israeli government. So if you are against needle pricks, you won't be able to come. I, people have already asked me, are you going to get vaccinated? Of course. I'm going to wait till Jerry Stokes get his and see how he does, and then I'll get vaccinated. <laughs> but here's the deal. If you go to Israel, one place we will definitely stand by God's grace is the top of the Mount of Olives. If you're on the Mount of Olives, that's where these men were. When Christ ascends from heaven from the top of the Mount of Olives, you look across this valley called the Kidron Valley. And of course, Messiah is going to eventually come back to the Mount of Olives. That's why all these Jewish people want to be buried there. And he's going to go up onto the Temple Mount. And so they're buried, feet looking at the uh, dome there. That's where the temple originally was. So when they're raised up, they'll be looking at the Messiah. Now, the Lord instructed them to return to Jerusalem, and the Bible says a Sabbath day journey away. That is defined in the Old Testament as 2,000 cubits, or about three-fifths of a mile. That's very instructive, because they leave the top of the Mount of Olives, and it brings them into the city limits. I was there with my son Jeremy. I said, well, let's walk across the Kidron Valley and up to the top of the Mount of Olives. And man, it, it, was, it was more involved than we thought. It just looked like, oh, it's a few hundred yards. It, it, it's it's three-fifths of a mile just about to bring you there, a Sabbath day journey. Further, we read in verse 13, and when they had entered the city, 
they went up to the upper room. Now stop right there for a moment. We know from Acts that the location of this event was in Solomon's portico on the Temple Mount. Here's a picture of the, uh, the, the temple in the first century. Uh, one of the things you do sometimes when you go to Israel is you see this first century model of a city. And it took one gentleman 30 years to build it. It's magnificent. It's breathtaking what he did. And uh, there is a temple in the middle of the structure, and you can see to the left the portico. Here's another picture of Solomon's portico, which again reminds you that after the Babylonians came in and they flattened the place when Nebuchadnezzar came in, that this was rebuilt, both Solomon's portico and the temple. And you read of it in Acts 3.11, for instance, the man who was lame begging at a gate, it took place here at Solomon's portico. And Josephus, of course, recognized, too, that it was in place. And so this is an important place. Now, the traditional site of the upper room is a place today they call Mount Zion, not technically the Mount Zion of the Bible. And it's southeast and outside of the Temple Mount, but it does not fit the geographical framework that's described there. Sometimes someone wants to build a church and they say an event happened there, and it really didn't. But they built a church there, and the Scripture would say, no, it couldn't have happened here, and here's why. In some places we don't know for sure, but some things we know definitively. So this is Pentecost. Shavuot, as the Jews call it, to this day. The Jews every year, they celebrate Pentecost. We've seen the fulfillment of it. They're still looking for it. And of course, um, it's right in the area of the Temple Mount where Pentecost takes place because they're in an upper room, some think actually in one of the rooms in Solomon's portico. If not, it's got to be right near it, adjacent to it, because they come out of the upper room and Peter preaches the gospel to thousands and thousands of people there on the southern steps, people from every nation. Why are they there? They're in the temple for Pentecost. And God sends a message that day when the 120 come out displaying the work of the Holy Spirit that under the old covenant, He had a temple for His people. Under the new covenant, He has a people who are His temple. And so they believe on the Lord Jesus. Brethren, what must we do? Repent, believe on Jesus, then be baptized. Well, where can you be baptized? There's no body of water in Jerusalem, no river there. Well, right outside of the temple entrances are what we call mikvahs. Here's a picture of a mikvah. Here's one that I picture I took of when I was there in Jerusalem. I showed some of you who've been with me some of the mikvahs. They're kind of like big baptismal fonts. The Jew, before he went into the temple, would go into the mikvah to ceremonially cleanse himself. Uh, there are some 48 mikvah baths that have been uncovered. There's many more than that, but at least 48 that we have found, we archaeology have found. So where did they baptize these 3,000 new converts? Right here in these mikvah baths. Some people say, well, I want to get baptized in the ocean. That seems more spiritual. Or I want to get baptized in the river. Well, actually, the very first born-again believers were baptized kind of like in a tank we have back here. A mikvah bath. That's how they did it. So on the day of the Pentecost, right outside of the temple region, God sent a message that he was changing locations by which his spirit would dwell. Look further. Some of the 120 are identified here by name in verse 13. When they had entered the city, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. That is Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, 
and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James. Now, these men are known as the Twelve. They were the Twelve Apostles. There's, of course, 11 here uh, because Judas is missing. He had hung himself, if you remember. And by the way, when you read a list like this, you have to ask, why did the Lord select these guys? I mean, sometimes people think of the apostles as, you know, men with halos, people who were virtually flawless with a rock-like character. The truth of the matter is, is not one halo on the whole bunch. And they're much like most of us sitting here this morning, just ordinary, everyday people. I mean, think about some in the list. Peter, he denies the Lord three times. He's present here. Philip, who kept trying to figure out how are we going to feed 5,000 households on 200 denarii. Thomas, the doubter, as he's nicknamed, was here, unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails and put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And all the men listed here had an argument, who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of God? And on the night that Jesus was betrayed, all 100% forsook and abandoned him. So why did Jesus choose these men and not some others who were equally qualified or maybe better qualified? Because of God's sovereign will. These men had nothing to do with their choosing. Christ selected them to be apostles, to be with him. So let's focus on those with the name James here. Again in verse 13. When they had entered the city, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, staying that is Peter and James and John. Now this James is probably... In fact, he is the best-known James in the New Testament. He's mentioned 21 different times. And since people, of course, in the first century did not have surnames or last names, but were identified by their father, he's referred to as James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother, of course, is John. Now, he's the older of the two. In the 17 out of the 18 times these two brothers are listed, James is always listed first. Why? Because he was the older. And so, for instance, in Matthew chapter 10 and verse 2, now the names of the 12 apostles are these. The first, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. So this one called James is called on the same day that his brother John is. And we learn from Matthew 4, going on from there, he saw two other brothers. So they're on the shore of Galilee. They're at a place called Bethsaida. There are two Bethsaidas in the New Testament, one on one side of the Sea of Galilee, one on the other side. Um, And there's two Bethanies and two Antiochs, and so that shouldn't totally surprise you. So they're on this beach, in fact... We go there every time. It's called Tabga, but it's technically Bethsaida. And it was there that Jesus found these disciples whom he eventually calls as apostles fishing. And by the way, it's there that he will do the first miracle where they'd fished all night and didn't catch anything. And then he sends in his sovereign way all the fish into the nets and the boats were sinking. Remember that? And then after the resurrection, they're waiting. They're not in disobedience. They're waiting for what Jesus told them to wait for. And so they're out fishing and fished all night again. And on that same beach, Jesus has a fish fish fry and does a miracle. So these are brothers, James and John, part of the inner three, Peter, James, and John. And this one called James is called on the same day as John, as Matthew 4 indicates. 
and they're working, and they have a father, again, by the name of Zebedee. And while they're working, earlier that night, all night long, Jesus spent the night in prayer before He chose His apostles. Luke tells us, and when day came, after He'd prayed all night, He called His disciples to Him and chose 12 of them, whom He also named as apostles, Simon, whom He also named Peter, and Andrew, His brother. It's interesting to see the brother teams in the 12, and James and John, their brothers, Philip and Bartholomew. Now, in the parallel account in Mark 3, we learn this, and He appointed the 12 Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, and James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to them he gave the name Bonerges, which means sons of thunder, as he explains for those who don't know Aramaic, and Andrew and on the list goes. So Jesus made James and John's Uh, He makes some apostles. You know John. We just studied one of the five books he wrote. He wrote the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John in the book of Revelation. And we're going to see in a moment, this is not the James who, of course, writes the epistle of James. But they are called Bonerges, which is an Aramaic word that means sons of thunder. In other words, they're, they're thunderous men. They're kind of impulsive guys. These are the two brothers who, when the Samaritans don't give Jesus the welcome that they thought he deserved, they say, Lord, can we call fire down from heaven? And these were the two who had a dear Jewish mother who came to Jesus with their sons requesting that they sit on his right and his left hands in the coming kingdom. Listen to this from Matthew chapter 20. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to Jesus with her sons, bowing down and making a request of him. And he said to her, what do you wish? She said to him, command that in your kingdom, these two sons of mine may sit one on your right and one on your left. Interestingly, these men, neither this mother or amillennialists, they believed what God said in the Old Testament, that a literal kingdom would come to the earth and Messiah would reign just as He promised. We just finished studying the thousand-year reign of Messiah through our work on the Revelation, and we saw six reasons why God will go to the kingdom. People say, well, why don't you just bring Jesus back and take us right into the eternal state? We went through six reasons why God will establish His kingdom first. That's all in the Revelation series. And by the way, this term, sons of thunder, is an expressive term. It means thunderous men. It's kind of like the term, son of God. It's not a depreciating term like our Mormons who say, well, God is God, but Jesus is the son of God. He's, He's a son of God like we're all sons and daughters of God, but not that He's God the Son. That's not how the Scripture uses the term. These are thunderous men. These are real men. These are like men's men's. And we need some real men in the church today. There are too many effeminate men who are tripping over their skirts when they walk into the pulpit week after week. Too many effeminate men in the ministry. And sadly, very sadly, we have women pastors who are filling a role that God has not called them to. They have another higher role in the body of Christ. And young boys in the church are being feminized. And it's not by accident that when you have women pastors that very often those boys become more effeminate. And in those churches, they have the highest expression of homosexual behavior. So you've got these two brothers with these impulsive tendencies that are part of the inner circle. 
Peter, James, and John, they are the three who meet Christ in the Mount of the Transfiguration. Only in Capernaum does Christ take these three to witness the raising of Jairus' daughter. And only these three go into the inner realm of the Garden of Gethsemane to watch Jesus pray. By the way, this is the same James that Luke writes about in Acts 12. You might want to circle his name and draw an arrow out into the margin. Let me read to you Acts 12.1. Now, about that time, Herod the king. By the way, there are seven Herods in the New Testament. You need to know each of them to be able to distinguish them. About that time, Herod the king laid hands on some who belonged to the church in order to mistreat them. And he had James, the brother of John, put to death with a sword. This is Herod Antipas the one that Jesus said, you fox, the one whom Jesus stood before where he is condemned to be crucified. He is a vile, he's a venomous king, and he has James the apostle, one of the original 12, beheaded. Now, we just read, Jesus turned to the two sons, James and John, and he said, in essence, you don't really know what you're asking for to sit on my left hand and my right, but the path to the throne for you will be a path of suffering and death. And James becomes the very first apostle to be executed. And his brother, John, of course, dies in exile on the Isle of Patmos, where he gives us the book of Revelation. And in case you're interested, and you should be, this James is the first apostle to die and the only apostle apart from Judas Iscariot, whose death is actually recorded. So because this James is so famous, people immediately say, oh yeah, that's the James who, who wrote the book of James that we're reading this morning. The fact is, Luke, who's a premier historian, drops all these little chronological clues throughout the book of Acts, and so we can definitively date this James's death at 44 AD, and it's another sermon in itself. We know the book of James was written between 46 and 49 A.D., some three years after the James that we just read of has been executed. Now, there's a second James mentioned here in Acts 1 and verse 13. When they had entered the city, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, that is Peter and John and James, and Andrew, Philip, and Thomas, Bartholomew, and Matthew. Now, listen, James, the son of Alphaeus. Now, the second James is designated here, James, the son of Alphaeus. Alphaeus, who, by the way, is also listed in Matthew 10 and verse 3, where there he's called James the less, meaning James the younger. And who's the younger then? His brother. Who's his brother? Matthew. Remember, Jesus met this guy at a tax collector's office in Capernaum. Matthew is called Matthew, the son of Alphaeus. And so this is his younger brother. Matthew is the older of the two. So James, the son of Alphaeus, he's repeatedly mentioned in association with the other apostles, and he's mentioned also in association with his mother. He has a mother named Mary. Now, there's a bunch of Marys in the New Testament. You've got to sort those out. This is not Mary, the mother of Jesus. This is one of the women one of the Marys who was there as Jesus died on the cross. This is one of the Marys who was there with Mary of Magdala and Salome when they go to the tomb early that Sunday morning. James, the son of Alphaeus, is one of really the unknown apostles and that nothing about his particular character is recorded for us in Scripture. None of his specific actions are written for us, except for the fact that he is in obedience to Christ's command, and he is in the upper room praying and waiting for the coming of the Holy Spirit. 
Now, the fact that nothing to speak of is written of him does not mean that he is unimportant. He was very important for Christ to have chosen him as one of the 12. And he is included in that group that will rule and reign with Christ on thrones, judging Israel during the millennial reign. Listen to these words, Matthew 19, 28. And Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you, that you who have followed me and the regeneration, the regeneration is when Messiah comes, rules on the earth. We study this in our Revelation series. We looked at a bunch of scripture where the earth is rejuvenated, the lifespan of people is greatly increased, and during the regeneration when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you also shall, shall sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel." I'll not go into that because we recently studied it, but remember also when you get to the holy city someday, and some of your loved ones are already there, we read, and the wall of the city had 12 foundation stones, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Some of your loved ones who are in the New Jerusalem, and that becomes just the capital city of a new heaven and a new earth that God is going to create in the future. They're walking around, and they're, now, who's that James? I, I don't know him, probably because they never read their Bible before, so they had to ask, one of those foundation stones has this James, James, the son of Alphaeus, James the last. Now, there's a third James here in Acts one thirteen. Are you paying attention? Don't drift. This is important. When they had entered the city, they went to the upper room. There's Peter, James, and John. There's James, the son of Alphaeus, and notice, and Judas, the son of James. Now, this James mentioned in the New Testament clearly did not write this letter. This is simply the dad of a man by the name of James, one of the 12. Well, why on earth would God mention his father's name? Because remember, this is a time where there's no last names. And if you had the name Judas, you would be glad that your name was qualified because you would not want to be associated with Judas Iscariot. Now, nothing else is known about this dad named James, except the fact that all agree he obviously did not write the epistle. But there's a fourth James that is mentioned indirectly here, and we'll see this morning he is the one who writes the letter that we're going to study in the months ahead. Look at verse 14. These all, with one mind, were continually devoting themselves to prayer along with the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. Now, you see his brothers... The nearest antecedent is Jesus. So we're talking about the brothers of the Lord Jesus. Now, some of you may have grown up in a church where you were taught that Mary did not have any other children. The Bible does not teach that. Listen to these words in Matthew 1.25. We are told that Joseph kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. The King James, a little bit more wooden, but it captures it beautifully, and knew her not till or until she brought forth her forsborn son, and he called his name Jesus. He did not know her until, meaning that Joseph and Mary had normal marital relationships after the Lord Jesus was born. In fact, let me read to you from Luke chapter 2. While they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn, which indicates Joseph and Mary had other children. Jesus is her firstborn. These verses alone, and some others we'll look at in a moment, unravel the Roman Catholic doctrine known as the perpetual virginity of Mary. Now, how do they come to that conclusion? 
when you will read verses that speak of Jesus' brothers because they base it on a translation of the Bible known as the Latin Vulgate. The Latin Vulgate is the official translation on which Roman Catholic doctrine is built. Now, in the Greek New Testament, the Scripture that God gave us the New Testament in, there are different words for brothers and cousins and relatives. And certainly, if uh, this were the brothers were just cousins as they uh, manufacture that doctrine, God the Holy Spirit could have used a perfectly good Greek word for cousins. It's used in Colossians chapter 4 in verse 10, but he doesn't use that word. If he had meant relatives, just some kind of a relative of sort, he had just used the Spirit of God, the term relative, to describe Mary and Elizabeth in their status together as cousins. But he doesn't do that. So that's called the uh, Hieronymian view after a guy by the name of Jerome. When you go to Bethlehem, we can't always get in there, but to me, one of the highlights is to go to Jerome's cave. I mean, it's a class A, this happened here. This man, Jerome, in the fourth century, lived in a cave for 35 years. It's really quite nice. It was a really pretty impressive place he had there. And uh, he learned Hebrew from the Jewish rabbis that lived in that town called Bethlehem, the house of bread. And he produced a beautiful translation of the Bible called the Latin Vulgate. Latin was the language of the scholars. And so for the next thousand years, virtually the only translation of the Bible that the church had was Latin given to us from Jerome. The problem is, of course, Latin became a dead language, and the only people eventually who could read it were the scholars. And again, it does not have the same degree of specificity that Koine Greek in which God gave us the New Testament in. Now, it is true that the word brother can be used generically, like there's my brother in Christ down there, but it can also be used specifically. And that's how it's used to describe the half-brothers of Jesus because, of course, Joseph was not his father. The Spirit overshadowed Mary's womb. Listen to what Gabriel said to Mary. Isaiah had predicted a virgin will conceive, and Gabriel said to Mary in Luke 1, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. So Joseph kept her a virgin until she gave birth. Now, if you grew up in the Orthodox Church, they say that, well, Joseph, these children, that Jesus had other brothers because they tend to be much more in tune to Greek than Roman Catholics are. And they say, no, you can't deny these are real brothers, but these are Joseph's sons from a previous marriage. Well, again, that doesn't match Scripture, and that was postulated in the 5th century by a guy by the name of Epiphanius, and so we call it the Epiphanian view. But neither of those views reflect what you read in the biblical account. And so as the centuries went by, Mary was not only viewed as a perpetual virgin, but she was eventually declared to be sinless. And then in the 1850s, the Roman church said that she was bodily assumed into heaven. And so therefore, instead of Christ being exclusively worshiped, you can go through another intercessor named Mary. They won't deny there's one mediator. They'll say there's a mediatrix, and they use the feminine form. It's just beyond belief. 
And so what ends up happening is Mary is venerated instead of Christ being worshipped. And if Christ wanted to dismiss some of these uh, false, I mean, if he wanted to affirm some of these false doctrines, remember on that occasion, a woman came to Christ out of the crowd and she said, blessed is the womb that bores you and the breast at which you nursed. What a bad, no better opportunity than for Jesus to say, yes, indeed, but he doesn't say that way. That he says, on the contrary, blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. To Jesus, obedience to the word of God was more important than even being such a great woman of God as Mary was to be able to bear the Messiah. Listen, there's only been one person who's ever walked on planet Earth who is sinless, and his name is Yeshua, Jesus. Mary in the Magnificat. And at this time of year, very often, I will hear people, they'll say, well, Mary's 12, 13, 14 years old, and she had children. That is such a distortion. It's only been around for about 100 years. And they almost make Joseph like he's some old pervert marrying a child. I've never met a 12 or 13-year-old girl that can draw together so much Scripture in all these books of the Bible that Mary does in what we call the Magnificant, Latin for the Song of Praise. Many of the terms we have, remember, Jerome gave us the Latin Bible. There's five terms and one written right across the front of the pulpit here. All Latin terms that come from the Latin reflection of Scripture. And so God is very clear that there's only one sinless person who's ever lived. And so in the Magnificant, she says, my soul exalts the Lord and my spirit has rejoiced in God, my Savior. Listen, only people who are sinners need saviors. We don't want to dismiss Mary. She was a magnificent woman. And sometimes as Protestants, because we are fighting against Roman Catholic heresy, we don't give her the place that God gave her, a fantastic woman. But like all of us, she descended from Adam. So the teaching that she was without sin, that she was a perpetual virgin, that she was a mediator, again, is dismissed. So please note, in the upper room back here in Acts 1, no one is praying to Mary, but Mary is praying with those present, and among those present are those who are called the brothers of Jesus. And so the Bible teaches what Helvidius affirmed, what we call the Helvidian view, that Mary and Joseph had other children. Listen to this from Matthew 13, 55. The people of Nazareth challenged that Jesus was the Messiah, and they asked, is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? They were saying, he's just like one of us. We know his brothers and his sisters and his mother and his father, who's only a carpenter. Don't tell us he's the Messiah. When Jesus makes his second visit to Nazareth after his public ministry begins, remember when he makes the first official proclamation there in the synagogue and he reads the prophet Isaiah and he says, yeah, this is all about me. They take him to the Mount of Precipice and they want to throw him over the cliff. Amazingly, a year later, he comes back to Nazareth. Why? Because he loves these people. Who is this guy claiming to be the Messiah? We know his brothers, in fact, they're named here, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas, and he has sisters, plural, which means there was at least two, so he grew, grew up in a family of at least seven children. Now, we'll see here in a moment, the brother mentioned in this verse, James, 
was not initially selected to be an apostle because like his other brothers, they were in unbelief. Hold your finger here. Go to John chapter 7. Don't lose your passage in Acts. <laughs> I know you got enough fingers to pull this off. Go to John chapter 7 for just a moment. John chapter 7. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, fourth book in the New Testament. John chapter 7. Now, as you're turning there, the half-brother in the list named Judas, who's also called Jude, we just read four brothers by name, gave us the book of Jude. In fact, in most countries of the world, they don't call it the book of Jude, they call it the book of Judas. But most English translations, we call it the book of Jude. I was in a foreign country once, and I said, well, turn to the book of Jude, and the translator said, well, what's the book of Jude? He had no idea. And it's really technically the book of Judas. But our English Bibles put the book of Jude because we want to distinguish him, of course, from Judas Iscariot. Maybe it's helpful, maybe it's not. Well, in either case, Jude was one of the half-brothers of Christ. And so before Judas Iscariot's betrayal, Judas, Judas was a very popular name, and so be. There was Judas Maccabeus, who led a great revolution in the second century to recapture the temple that had been stolen. And then, of course, uh, Judas is reflective of the word Judah, from which the Messiah would come. Well, in either case, God used two of the half-brothers of Christ, one to give us the book of Jude, the other the letter to James, the letter from James. Now, John 7, look at verse 2. Now, the feast of the Jews, the feast of booths was near. Now, notice the advice that his brothers give him. By the way, if you go to Israel today, they still celebrate the feast of booths. It's usually in the September, October time frame. They're on a lunar calendar, so it's not always the same date. And they literally, the Orthodox people, set up these tents, and they live in these tents for a week in obedience to what God told them to do in the Scripture. So the Feast of Booths was near, one of the important festivals, and his brothers, verse 3, therefore his brothers said to him, leave here and go into Judea so that your disciples also may see your works which you are doing. They're saying, in essence, don't waste your time out here in the countryside, go into Judea. They knew that the Feasts of Tabernacles or the Feasts of Booths or Sukkot, as they call it, would draw thousands of faithful pilgrims into the city of Jerusalem. And if Jesus were to go into Judea and he really was whom he claimed to be, whom his mother was telling his brothers that he was, then go there and show us. If you're really interested in religious prominence, Go to the capital city. Verse 4, for no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. If you're really the Messiah, then advance your cause. Go to Jerusalem, and the people will indeed believe it. Now, they're challenging him to produce his works or his miracles. Now, remember, one miracle had been done publicly, which they did not see. A short distance from Nazareth is a little village called Cana where he turned the water into wine. And of course, on that day, only his mother and the disciples and the servants knew what had taken place. So they want to see some of these miracles that they've been hearing about. Come on, you know, um, the only one that's happened out here in the sticks is the one in Cana. And, and they didn't even really know about it, but they'd heard about it, but they didn't witness it personally. In fact, in light of Mark chapter 3 and verse 20, some would say that, well, these brothers wanted him to go there so that the zealots 
would end up hating him and uh, that these brothers had this malignant hatred for Jesus and they wanted to see his ministry done and over with. Now, that's not true. Put out in the margin Mark 3, 20 and 21, and let me read it to you. Mark 3, 20 and 21. We are told, and he came home, home here being Capernaum. When you think of the life of Christ, think of four places. Bethlehem, where he was born. Nazareth, where he was raised. Capernaum, that also becomes his hometown, where he spends three years after he's rejected in Nazareth. And of course, Jerusalem, where he was crucified, raised from the dead, and is coming back again. He came home, and the crowd gathered again to such an extent that day that they could not even eat a meal. When his own people heard of this, this is a reference to his family, his, when his own people heard this, they went out to take custody of him, for they were saying, he has lost his senses. The Living Bible says, he's out of his mind. The Philip says, he must be mad. They were obviously wrong in their evaluation of the Lord Jesus, but not in their love for him. They loved him. His own people really thought he had lost it at this point, these brothers. Now, what was their motivation on this occasion in John 7? Why did they want him to go to Jerusalem? Well, again, some think that, you know, indeed, they had a malignant hatred. We've just dismissed that. Some think, well, if mom is really right, and he is the Messiah, and these works we've been hearing about, then go to Jerusalem and and express them. And of course, on top of that, you know, there was probably some uh, consternation they were feeling every time they went to the synagogue in, in Nazareth, and they would have liked to have settled it. I mean, here's the one who's talking about eating my flesh and drinking my blood. He's out of his mind. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. And the key to understanding the motivation of these half-brothers is if. And it means precisely that. If you do these things, if you really do these works, then go and show yourself, and we will believe you too. A different kind of if, but on that occasion at the temptation, Satan said, if you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from the pinnacle of the temple. Satan challenged Jesus, if you're really the Messiah, then prove it. And that's kind of what they're doing. And by the way, Jesus never took that route. He never took the route of sensationalism and emotionalism. He always opened up the Scriptures. And everything he did was based on the sound teaching of the Scripture. And if you follow some thrill-seeker pastor, sooner or later you're going to need a greater thrill. And you'll be let down. But that's the way a lot of churches and ministries are built. But don't put your stamp of approval on a church or a ministry based on the entertainment value or the sensation or the emotion that it gives you. People, why do you choose that church? It really makes me feel good. You know, I love the worship, whatever that means. A healthy ministry is always evaluated based on the teaching that is going on. You cannot evaluate a ministry based on its size, its mass, the sensation, the emotion, but on the teaching. That's true biblical discipleship. For not even his brothers were believing in him. That seems so incredible. They lived in the same home for 30 years. Now remember, during those 30 years, he didn't do a single miracle. Not until he begins his public ministry. 
But what is it? Why isn't they couldn't embrace what he claimed about himself, what mom said about him? Well, maybe it was jealousy. And think about it. You grow up in a family of seven kids. Jesus never got a spanking. Jesus was never reprimanded. Everything he always did was always correct. In fact, there is a psalm that predicts this, which again tells us Jesus had real brothers. It's Psalm 69. It's a psalm that is quoted not only in the Gospels, but in the Acts of the Apostles and in the book of Romans. There are a number of Davidic psalms that not only related to King David himself, but also looked way into the future of the Messiah himself. And one of those psalms is Psalm 69. In the Gospel of John, it's already been quoted in the second chapter where Jesus goes in and he cleanses the temple and he quotes Psalm 69, zeal for thy house has consumed me. Most of us know at least the two other times it is referenced when Jesus is on the cross in Psalm 69, 21. They also gave me gall for my food and for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. That's Psalm 69, a messianic psalm. It's quoted 12 times in the New Testament. But let me remind you of one verse today from that psalm that's especially important in light of what we're studying. Verse 8 of Psalm 69, I have become estranged from my brothers and an alien to my mother's sons. Please note it was not his mother, not his sisters, but his brothers that thought he had gone crazy with a Messiah context. So we just read, his brothers therefore said, depart, go to Judea, show yourself. In addition, having felt some jealousy, they probably felt a certain degree of embarrassment, maybe resentment, and I'm sure they resented the disgrace that they felt every time they went to worship there in the synagogue in Nazareth. Listen to these words again. I have become estranged from my brothers and an alien to my mother's sons. Now, that's an interesting reading. He's writing this 900 years before Bethlehem. Since Jesus was not Joseph's natural son, the psalmist by the pen of King David does not speak of my father's sons, which would be the typical reading, but my mother's sons. But praise God, these brothers ultimately came to faith, and here they are in this upper room waiting for the promise of the Spirit. As I've already noted, God uses two of his brothers to give us two books in the New Testament. So back here to James 1.1, stay with me. This is foundational. Don't drift on me. Some of you are nodding off. Stay with me, James, a bondservant of God, of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's a bondservant. He's a doulos. He's a slave. Now, he speaks to him as Lord. Sometimes kurios is just a term of respect, not for James in this context. He is going to mention in verse 5, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, and then he will say in verse 7, and the Lord, kurios. So he's identifying Jesus as the Lord. He's affirming his deity. What changed it for these men? The resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 5, and he appeared to Cephas, then to the 12. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James. And notice James doesn't open this letter. I am James. You know, Jesus' brother dropping a name. He's going to speak against that before he's done with this letter. But no, I am James, the slave, the bondservant 
of Jesus Christ because his real relationship to Jesus is not physical, it is spiritual. This is the James who writes this epistle and he ends up on the leadership team in the Jerusalem church taking the place of James, the son of Zebedee, who's executed. And if you remember on that day when Peter is in prison for preaching the gospel and an angel, you know, sends someone to interrupt the prayer meeting and uh, she's knocking on the door and no one answers, oh, it must be his angel. Well, they're praying for Peter to be released and the angel says, report these things to James and to the brethren. By this time, James is what we would call the senior pastor of the church in Jerusalem. In Galatians 1.18, then three years later, Paul's giving his testimony. I went up to Jerusalem to become acquainted with Cephas, Peter, and stayed with him 15 days. But I did not see any other of the apostles except James, the Lord's brother. So Paul recognizes James is the Lord brother, and he recognizes that James is an apostle, so we will often refer to him as the Apostle James. And so by the time Galatians is written, James, along with Peter and John, they're referred to in Galatians 2 as pillars of the church. Then in Acts 15, there's a council, the Jerusalem council, and they're trying to figure out how are we going to deal with all these Gentile converts who are coming to faith, and how are we going to mix up the Jews with the Gentiles? And the one who leads the council is James, the half-brother of Jesus, the senior pastor who becomes an apostle after the resurrection. He's the only James who can fit the billet. And by the way, when you listen to his speech and read the words that are quoted of him, the same style is reflected in the epistle of James. And then on top of that, we have what we call external evidence. People who lived after the apostles, who wrote about the apostles, and and all of the external evidence without exception, whether it's Eusebius or Origen or uh, Polycarp, all these church fathers said there was one author for the epistle of James, and it's the half-brother of Jesus. Now, that's, I spent a lot of time on that, but I'm telling you, it's going to become very important to you before we're done. Third, who are the recipients? I'm actually almost done. Who are the recipients? Here in verse 1, we learn to whom James is writing. James, a bond servant, and he is writing to the 12 tribes who are dispersed abroad. He's writing to those who are dispersed abroad. Now, if you drop back to Acts 8, or you can just listen to it, in Acts chapter 8 and verse 1, we're told Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him, Stephen, to death. Stephen had just given this incredible sermon. He went through the whole Old Testament. He proved Jesus was the Messiah that was prophesied. And we're told that Saul is in hearty approval. He gives leadership to the execution of this deacon. And on that day, when Stephen was murdered, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered. That term scattered becomes a very important term in the New Testament. They were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Some devout men buried Stephen because God's men are always buried. No cremation in the Bible. God's way is through burial. Some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over them, him. But Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house, and dragging off men and women. He put them in prison. So after Stephen had been murdered, some bloodthirsty religious zealots thought, here's an ideal time to go against these Jewish believers here in the city of Jerusalem. People were beaten. They were forced to flee their homes. 
They were sent off to prison, verse 4. Therefore, those who had been scattered, diaspero, it's the verb of the same noun that James just used in James 1.1. Therefore, those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. They did not use their circumstances to bellyache and to complain, but rather as a pulpit. They didn't, the text doesn't say those who were scattered went about griping and groaning. Oh my, where's the Lord when we need him? All this persecution. No, they went about preaching the word. I hear more Christians bellyaching about COVID. What an opportunity to preach the word. What an opportunity for us to reach people for Jesus. Now, notice the word scattered in, again in Acts 11 and verse 19. So those who are scattered. So there becomes a category that starts in Acts 8 when the church is persecuted, and they become the scattered one of these 12 tribes who are scattered all to these different places. So those who were scattered because of the persecution that occurred in connection with Stephen made their way to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except to the Jews alone. Now remember, the church in the early days, as recorded in the Acts, was largely Jewish at first. It's not until Acts chapter 10 that the first Gentile believes on Jesus. And so at this stage of the church... He is writing James 1-1 to the 12 tribes who are dispersed. It's the, ver, it's the noun form of what we just read in Acts. The scattered ones. He's writing to the scattered ones, the diaspora. They're scattered like seed to different places. Now, you will find as you read this book of James, it's a very Jewish book because he's writing to 12 tribes, to Jewish people. And in the 108 verses that you will read, there are 22 references to the 39 books of the Old Testament. And we'll look at many of those as we work through the book. 22 allusions to 39 books of the Old Testament. So James was brought up in the home of Mary and Joseph, a godly couple, drenched in the Scriptures. And his eyes are opened after the resurrection and God translates that building by his parents to make him a great leader for the cause of Christ. And he gives us this book in the New Testament. And it is that James, the half-brother of Jesus, who is writing to the dispersed or the scattered ones. Have you ever been scattered, transferred? Some of you are in the Marine Corps or in the Navy, and, and you get scattered every few years. And it's so exciting. I love the dimension that the Marines and the Navy personnel bring to this church. And some leave behind them someone they, they've introduced into the kingdom. And then some will find Christ here, and they're sent to different states and different countries, and they're paid-for missionaries underwritten by the U.S. government. I love it. Listen, you need to see your circumstances not as accidental but as providential. Finally, why did James write this book? Why did he write it? Now, I think most of you know that every New Testament book is written for a reason. Different books address different questions and areas of theology that God knows that his people are going to need throughout the centuries until Jesus comes. 
For instance, the Corinthians asked Paul a bunch of questions starting in chapter 7, and he ticks them off, not to mention all the issues of carnality that he has to address. Galatians warns against legalism and false teaching. Jude was written so that you can spot apostates who craftily sneak into the local church but are not true pastors. And the epistle of James is written early in the first century, largely to deal with Christians who are being persecuted. They had already been scattered by the persecution of Acts 8, and a second wave of persecution is soon going to fall that will draw the rest of them out to Rome and out of Israel. And so there were Jewish people whose businesses were being boycotted, who had been rejected by their families. And by the way, I think there's persecution coming. I don't tweet very often. If you follow me on Twitter, I only tweet about every, I don't know, couple of months. But I tweeted out something yesterday. What's happening in Australia, where you have Christian born-again foster parents who are considered unfit because of their view of transgenderism. And they said, look, we're willing to take transgender kids even. No, you're unfit. I wonder how soon it will be before our own government will say to parents, you are unfit, you are a dangerous parent, you have an eight-year-old who in the school was taught transgenderism, he wants to change his sex, you're a dangerous parent not to let him do what he wants to do. You say, that will never happen. Look, if we talked about this subject 20 years ago, you would have said, that's unbelievable. I mean, it's almost ridiculous that a man would say he wants to become a woman or a woman wants to become a man. You're out of your mind. If that's the perversion of our day, persecution is coming. And this book is going to be incredibly helpful. Now, read through it this week. And there are four or five key words that I would like you to look for this week. One, the word wisdom. There's a lot of practical wisdom in this little book. And so it's often called the Proverbs of the New Testament. He will admonish us here in the opening chapter. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. Secondly, look for the word faith. James will describe and define a very realistic kind of faith in terms of how you put it into practice so that one of the most quoted verses in the New Testament is found in this epistle. Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead being by itself. And quite frankly, life has some grim, threatening, and unsafe aspects to it, and we need to learn to walk by faith. A third key word that you might want to look for this week is the tongue. It's a subject that is in everyone's mouth. And of course, the difference between a mature person and an immature person deals with the tongue. And so he will say we all sin or stumble in many ways, but if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a teleos man, able to bridle the whole body as well. The fourth key word that you want to look for this week is the word world. He will tell us not to hold too tightly to the world's riches and to shun the value system that it propagates. He will say, you adulterous, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility to God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world, not of worldly people, Christ loves sinners... But the value system of the world, don't tell me you're an evangelical and you think transgenderism is, you're, you, you've got a twisted mind. 
That's not evidence of a regenerated person. Don't tell me that it's okay to have same-sex attraction. Listen, that's the value system of the world. The person who makes himself a friend of the world because they want to be liked by the world makes himself an enemy of God. A fifth key word is the word prayer. Outside of the Gospels, this writer, James, says more about prayer than any other New Testament writer, and he will recognize how critical it is to the persecution they are facing. And so he starts with prayer, and he will end the letter with prayer that the effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. So look for those. Now, how are we going to apply this this week. Let me share some applications as we close. Number one, James challenges our perspective on what a true Christian is. We learn right here in the front door of the letter, James will say that a person who is a true Christian, who has genuine faith, is a person who is like Christ. And we live in a day of Christless Christianity, a day which people can promise you, this is your best life now. It might be for some, because hell is a whole lot worse. That Jesus is here to make you happy, to heal you, to make you wealthy, to make you feel good, to give you a better marriage, but not to be his slave. James a slave of Christ. We live in a day of self-centered Christianity where these men and women are preaching what Paul calls another Jesus. In fact, the reason the average church in America never opens the book of James is because the way the opening chapter starts, finding joy in trials... They, they, they can't reason that because it's antithetical to the theology and the message that they preach. And so people try out their Jesus until they hit a bump in the road. Hey, I thought you told me that Jesus had a wonderful plan for my life. A miscarriage isn't that wonderful. Sickness isn't that wonderful. A cheating spouse isn't that wonderful. A child that dies isn't that wonderful. Suffering persecution, that's not wonderful. So James is going to challenge our perspective on what a Christian is. Secondly, James will challenge our perspective on what a bondservant is. Here again in the opening verse, he identifies himself as a bondservant. And throughout this book, he is going to give you and I an invitation to a life of slavery. Jesus said, for whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. All the way through the gospels and the epistles, the very ingredients of salvation comes out of a slave culture. And so slave terminology is used. You are not your own. You've been bought with a price. We are bond slaves. Jesus will say to those who have lived their life for him, well done, thy good and faithful. Same word, doulos, slave, bond servant. But sadly in our day, the gospel has been twisted to fit the likes of people. And so the message is come to Jesus for a thrill ride but not to be his slave, not to deny yourself. And so I would ask you this morning, whose slave are you? We went to China 18 months ago, 
to take the discovery class material that we've been teaching on Wednesday night, basic discipleship, and to translate it into Mandarin. And we had to jump through a number of hoops. And by the way, when you think of places like China and Iran, don't always think of them as the enemy. Look, there's real born-again believers in Iran. I don't know if you ever pray for the church in Iran. There's a whole lot more believers in China than there are in this country. And so they got permission to take my discovery class material, translate it into Mandarin, and God willing, we'll go back after COVID, and we're supposed to teach it to some 4,000 pastors. But one of the highlights for me of this last trip to China was to go to the graveside of that great 19th century Protestant Christian missionary named Hudson Taylor. I read his book, Taylor's Spiritual Secrets when I was a brand new Christian, and what a challenge it was to my life. And so when I saw we had the opportunity to go to the place where he was actually buried with his family members, I wanted to go there. In fact, they are so grateful, the Chinese people, for what he did. They built a whole structure around the whole place. He went there, not like the typical missionary, oh, we're going to build, you know, a white frame New England church and do what we do up in the Northeast and bring it to China. No, he went there, he said, I'm going to eat like the Chinese people, I'm going to dress like the Chinese people, I'm going to cut my hair like the Chinese people, I'm going to be all things to all men, I'm going to be sensitive to this culture, and God used them to plant church after church after church. He visited China 11 times, he spent a total of 51 years there, and he suffered many hardships, arrests, insults, slander, poverty. He buried his wife and four of his eight children there. And when he came home, he said, I never, <laughs> I never made a sacrifice for Christ. On one occasion, he's in Australia. It's the end of his life. He's introduced as an old man. And the person I'm seeing went on through all of his works and accomplishments And finally, he says, here is our illustrious guest, Hudson Taylor. And he walked into the pulpit. He said, dear friends, and I quote, I am the servant of an illustrious master. Sounds like James 1.1. That's what we need today. Some men and women who will be slaves of Christ. And James is going to pull back the veneer and give us a spiritual physical. And I hope we'll be ready to hear and to apply. Now, our Holy Father, you're so good, so kind, so loving. In the deadness of our sin, you rescued us through the preaching of the gospel. Thank you, as this apostle said, we've been born again, not of perishable seed, but imperishable seed through the living and abiding word of God. Thank you for this same writer who told us that we are to long for this truth that we might grow in respect to our salvation. And so in these months ahead, we pray that our hearts would be ready I know, Father, there's always people listening every week who can't even begin to take the first step to grow because they've never received your Son. 
Help them to realize that Jesus paid their debt in full. And if they will acknowledge their sin as sin and put their faith where you put their sin on Christ, that Christ Jesus receives sinful men. You said it is a trustworthy statement that Jesus came into the world to save sinners. So help someone today in faith, taking you at your word to say and believe what you promised. Lord Jesus, save me. Give them the courage to become part of a New Testament Bible-believing church wherever in the world they are listening. And to take those first steps to confess Jesus as Lord and to be baptized as an emblem of their faith. But for those of us who have already crossed that line, may this not be just another study of another book of the Bible, but may it be life-changing. May you use it that we might be instruments and trophies of your grace. We ask in Christ's name, amen.